Mother Earth is psychedelic. Her body is covered with psychoactive, sacred medicine. Can psychedelics help us become more conscious and loving parents, partners, lovers, and leaders? Welcome to the Psychedelic Mom Podcast. I'm your host, Michaela Carlin, the Psychedelic Mom, a mother and entrepreneur partnering with Mother Earth's sacred plant medicines to heal, awaken, and learn to live in alignment to my truth. Psychedelic literally means soul revealing. What reveals the soul to oneself is psychedelic. I invite you to join me in deep conversations with leaders, healers, seekers, and other parents. I will share my journey, the wisdom, practices, medicines, and mistakes that have changed my life, and personal stories of others on this wild path. We are the medicine needed to birth the more beautiful world we know is possible. Welcome, Erin, to the Psychedelic Mom podcast. It's so good to see you today. I'm sitting with Aaron Orsini, and he is such a legend in the psychedelic field. You are, actually, because you're really at this cutting edge that no one's really talking about, which is the use of psychedelics and autism. And I know there are a lot of people talking about autism, but there's still so much to know Now you've combined this field of psychedelics and autism. You've written two books now, or are you on your third? Published three, working on four. Okay, so autism and psychedelics. So the first was uh, Autism on Acid in 2019, and then we published an anthology of like uh, 50 people's stories from our community that was called Autistic Psychedelic. And then I published uh, more of like a resource that's called Introduction to Psychedelic Autism that's more oriented towards some of the stuff that we talk about in our coursework. So I got to know you because I reached out to you when my daughter actually got diagnosed this year with autism. And so I want to know a little bit more how to support her. And also I then dove into taking your class. I'm learning so much about so many things in that. So I want to talk about that later down the road. But could you just start maybe with what is autism spectrum disorder and why are so many people getting diagnosed so late in life? For context, there's a lot of freely available resources. If you want to look up the classical definition, you can look up like in the DSM-5, there's the definition that like is more often prescribed in the States and a couple of other regions. And that's really just defining it by a set of characteristics and trait presentations. You know, things, there's just like a long, it's essentially like a long checklist. And you don't have to qualify for all of the items on the checklist. There's just a series of like presentations, behaviors. I won't go into like the granular details because the list itself is like 30 different trait presentations. And so I think it's for the sake of utility and for the sake of the fact that that's easily accessible information just kind of by Googling it. I think it's, I think it's helpful to kind of give like a culturally accessible definition of just kind of making the emphasis that there's a lot of different presentations. Uh, within autism itself because you don't have to check all of those boxes. You know, there's a sort of culturally held idea that it's defined by specifically, you know, social difficulties. But the origins of those social difficulties can be, you know, rooted in a lot of different variances in social cognition processing. I've known just from interfacing with some 5,000 autistic people within our community space that have come to our meetings over these years, like there's so much variation that I hesitate to kind of 
add to the further boxing in of these individuals and kind of would like to speak to, you know, some of the challenges, some of like the gifts and abilities that are kind of novel, but really just, I try to just avoid generalizing, even though it's like the soundbite thing wants us to, it's like, it's, it's only, you can't give that to me, just the soundbite. <laughs> I, I, the soundbite is like, it's more than a soundbite really. Like it, it truly, it is. Um, and I know that sounds maybe frustratingly vague. You can look up the definition. And if you, if you did, I myself would, you know, I'd tick like a dozen of those boxes in certain circumstances, in certain, under the influence of certain substances now, that these things are like more, you know, temporal or more like fluid than I think uh, is more often talked about. Like these things become such like permanent solidified identifiers. But my experience has been so different from that, that I hesitate to like reinforce this idea of like permanent identity and permanent ability rather than like fluidity and context dependent abilities and things of that nature. That's actually really important. This idea of fluidity and the context of which you're in, maybe your abilities shift and change. And I think you also hinted at even maybe on a psychedelic, your abilities shift and change. So there may be certain characteristics and struggles and both challenges as well as um, I know that many gifted people are considered autistic as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Just as you know, non-autistic people can excel similarly, um, and through that, you know, there's a lot of trait presentations that you know they do. It's frustrating because I also work in the domains of research, and research thrives off of you know pulling and extra extrapolating data and making kind of averages and you know uh, detecting trends and, and and finding normal ranges, abnormal ranges. And I know that it seems like I'm like dancing around all of these things, but it's like, I think I do better with specificity. And that's also a trait presentation of autism. Because <laughs> again, I, I just think I, I hold all these people in my mind and my heart when I think about talking or representing them in any way. I think I have an easy time articulating maybe my experience. Maybe that's like a jumping off point with the, with the caveat of like, this is my experience of my particular trait presentations of autism. I think that's easier for me to answer because I draw a blank because I know that if I said one thing, it wouldn't be true for half of the people in my group. Yeah, I actually think that's a beautiful approach. It'd be like someone saying, like, what's it like to be a doctor? What's it like to be a mother? What's it like to be a creative person? Well, <laughs> it's going to be different for every human being. So to be put in boxes, I can imagine in any area is frustrating. So I really think that's wonderful that you're going at the fluidity of it. And so what has your experience, Ben, when did you get diagnosed? And yeah, when did you get diagnosed? And what are some of the gifts of autism for you? And what have, what have some of the real challenges been for you? For me, I was actually not diagnosed until I was 23 years old. Uh, part of that uh, is largely contributed by the notion that, you know, I might have struggled with aspects of mental health, depression or anxiety or things like this. But the more of the strong markers of was I well, quote unquote, were more often kind of, at least as far as I had associated them, were markers of academic success or professional success. Uh, I was actually like hyperlexic as a kid. So I was reading and writing at advanced levels early along. So that kind of speaks to some of like the gift components. 
but some of the challenges that I faced was in the general interpretation of you know social information uh, in the sort of ability to participate in like reciprocal uh, conversation or discern kind of the rhythm and pacing of interactions and just kind of being socially clumsy. My solution to this, which you could perhaps call a gift, was to become highly performative uh, in general uh, in order to kind of mitigate the back and forth. Uh, I'm trying to be mindful on this podcast of being a bit more reciprocal and not fall into like eight TED Talks and giving you four seconds to talk. So on that, I will take pause intentionally because <laughs> I've written on a sticky note here, uh, listen more than I talk today. So I'm going to try to do that, even though I know I'll probably won't, but I will try. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. But I like right there, you just spoke to one of the strategies and tools that you probably use is to put something right in front of you, you know, which we all need. But it's funny you say that I a podcast, uh, it was my first one that I was on got released today. And um, I was listening to it last night. And you know, what? I need the same sticky. <laughs> like, let the host speak. <laughs> I have to say, though, we did do this interview before for everybody out there, and we had some audio challenges. So I'm happy to be here with you today. And I actually feel that even that experience led me to know you a little bit better. And I just feel such a warmth toward you. And to see the intelligence, not only that, the depth of knowledge that you have on this topic is remarkable. When you were diagnosed, this is another kind of thing that I want to tap into a little bit, because when my daughter was diagnosed, she felt a sense of celebration. And that was not clear. The why of that was not clear for the rest of the family. I felt like I understood it. And so I found myself trying to explain to one of her siblings why she was so excited about this diagnosis. And so I want to ask you from your perspective, why would somebody who got diagnosed with autism suddenly feel a sense of kind of relief and deep understanding of who they are? And why would they want to celebrate that diagnosis? Yeah. And I think I can speak to it kind of from a social level and then from a personal level. I think some of that social phenomenon is almost like the individual gets diagnosed they have led a life in which there's a lot of dissonance in their immediate experience. And suddenly they're met with information that simultaneously explains the dissonance and then gives them opportunity to just kind of like settle in and uh, like kind of attune to different like attention. And I think similarly for those that are observing the individual, it's a dissonance for them to be like, that's not accurate because you're so not that. And it's coming, I think, from a caring place from these individuals of being like, you're not disabled, you're great. But for a lot of people within the autistic community, there's a sentiment of like, I'm disabled. I'm not ashamed of being disabled. I'm nonetheless disabled. It would be like if everyone danced around the idea of like me not having any arms or something, it would be like, I don't have arms, though. <laughs> like this, I do have these limitations at times. Let's talk about that. And let's also recognize that any person even if they don't get a diagnosis, has limitations and has like skills that they can excel at. And like the acknowledgement of that variation, it's just that we have a heavily dualistic way of looking at it of autism is primarily an indication that you don't fall into the quote, like normal range of, you know, patterns of behavior. But when you look at the ways in which these abnormal behaviors 
plug back in in adulthood, there's a lot of utility in industry, in academia. There's a million different ways where people who might not fall into the socially normative range are still serving a role in the social function and order, especially as we move away from a time in which, like, I mean, we were in the pandemic and uh, face-to-face skills became irrelevant. I would argue that my parents became disabled by having to go on the internet. <laughs> like, they, you know, like they, like, they needed, like, a ramp to understand how to use Zoom. Like, there was a, there was a challenge. When we really peel it back, these definitions, these categories, these boxes, they serve a utility, they inform insurances, they all sorts of things. But nonetheless, they're built on a storyline that was built in the standardization model rather than like the diversification model. So, you know, I turn it back to you to kind of follow up. I love that ramp. <laughs> and the, the thing is, like you're talking about, each situation can, we can be limited even as non-autistic people. But I was also thinking of my daughter. And one of the things that came to me is because she had struggled, right? She had some depression in high school. And then she's seeing other family members, siblings just succeed in ways that she's feeling like something must be wrong with me. And she's comparing maybe herself to the standards that we have in the world that if you read Gabor Mate's book, uh, The Myth of Normal, um, maybe they don't serve any of us. And I always think of um, Krista Murdy's quote, to be aligned to a profoundly sick society um, is no measure of health. And so I feel like possibly, and I don't know if this is going to resonate with you, when my daughter got the diagnosis, it was like, oh my gosh, her line was I thought something was wrong with me. Nothing's wrong with me. And yet I'm autistic. So it wasn't that I was bad. It wasn't that I couldn't perform. It was I actually am autistic. And there was kind of a relief in that. Does that resonate at all? Yeah. I mean, it's all just language choices and connotations. You know, um, I used to have a friend who was employed as a, like an aptitude specialist. They would go to offices, they would give people aptitude tests, and then they would assess whether it was like a harmonious setup. And they would suggest rearrangements of being like, actually, you're underutilizing this team member, and maybe you should put them there and do this. And like, if you were to get like a personality type, would you be like, I'm devastated, I have a personality. <laughs> like, there's, there's that. But nonetheless, this isn't to shortchange it. Like, everything exists, we talked about it in our class, like everything exists in like the polarity of like pathologizing these conditions versus like taking it so far to the point to where like this is purely a difference that we're ignoring, that there are still like contextual challenges. A more easier to imagine metaphor similarly is like someone who requires wheelchair access in general uh, is going to be inherently disabled in that context. In another context, that person that is in the wheelchair that has to walk downhill for 25 miles is suddenly the abled body person in the 25-mile walk where in that sort of reverse circumstance. So if there's an accommodation provided where the person who is not in a wheelchair can be provided a wheelchair, suddenly there is therefore like um, access and accommodation provided to level out those contextual differences. So in that same sense, when your daughter is going through that experience, I had a very similar experience, almost like a grieving process mixed with like an elation process. Also, there's just a factor of being young in general and like thinking that everything is so magnified and everything is so significant at those ages. But there was definitely the sense of like, oh, man, I've also received this sort of like I'm doomed forever and like nothing's ever going to you know, work out. And 
we talked about it in our group. We got like kind of very heavily emotional in the group the other week where we brought up the idea of like, if you're disabled, there's like a very real dark thought inside of any disabled person, especially if it's a genetic sort of condition, that maybe that means that people aren't going to pursue them as a partner or as a parent. Like maybe that means that like the that's like the darkest center of it that like we don't talk about often, but like that's a thought that a lot of people with genetic disorders have. Like maybe I'm unwanted inherently because of this, or maybe it's irresponsible of me to produce a child. Like it's, it's, it's a really dark thought to have, but it's not to say it doesn't come up. I'm not saying that like, I believe in this. I'm saying I've been challenged by that thought at times. And that's a really sad thing to, to, to get kind of like hit by. You know, until I really found community with other people who were like, you know, I totally get how you are. And it's very obvious how you would think that because I also think that way, like the Internet's allowed us to find each other. And through that, there's this like the challenging of that similar myth of being like, we're all very compassionate in our space wherein we understand each other's needs. It's like we're a regardless of like race or gender or any of these things, we have like a subculture and a compassion within that as just like a, a marginalized group that has a relatively shared mythology. Like without even being in the same classroom, we had the same experience of being the outlier in a classroom. And that shaped us in ways that we can relate. And we treat each other with like an, a, a sort of heightened level of care because we know what it's like to be the recipient of like various kinds of uncaring approaches throughout our lives, which again, I, through psychedelic work, I've forgiven a lot of people that I thought were like causing harms to me when in fact they were operating from their vantage point, I was operating from mine. And like that perspective taking takes a lot of effort. Yeah, there's two things that you were hitting on there. First is I want to acknowledge this idea that, you know, my daughter's only response was relief. That That isn't true. I think they're was that grieving process. She actually asked me to send all the photos of her as her as a child so she could kind of relook at her life and contextualize it with this diagnosis. And there's definitely grief. And then second to that is that other piece that you're talking about. I mean, my daughter is in a long-term relationship. She's been with somebody for four years. But I think there is that piece. So from your personal experience, what is dating like for you? Have you had a long-term relationship? We're going to get personal, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I've definitely been in relationships. And, you know, before I was diagnosed, uh, a lot of the people that I fell in with and like felt a comfort around, it's rare for there's to even be a quote, like autistic culture, so to speak. It's very new uh, time timeline wise. Um, but for those of us who have had the privilege to be in like majority of autistic spaces, there's just distinct, distinct ways. I think a good way of illustrating this maybe to a more mainstream audience is to take into consideration like a show like Love on the Spectrum, for example. In that show, there's a heavy emphasis on like the normalization and the sort of typicalization of autistic behaviors, like by which I mean, there was an attempt to force behaviors that might not either be natural or really even necessary maybe for those individuals in order to forge connection with others. You know, some autistics engage in what's known as like parallel play where they're like kind of just in the same space doing, working on whatever it is they're working on. And there's just like a kind of like a comfort of like presence and still an ability to like kind of like go into each other's bubbles, but there isn't always necessary like a fully shared experience in those moments because maybe that's just more energizing for those individuals. 
And I think that like even in non-autistic relationships, there's probably people in their <laughs> marriages that are like, oh, I'm going to go read a book now. Like, the, like the, there's this myth with certain kinds of like modes and things. But with Love on the Spectrum, the thing that kind of becomes troubling for certain autistics is this idea of like we're being directed towards patterns of behavior that mirror a sort of mode of processing that isn't mirrored internally. So we're ignoring like our, you know, the compass, the locus of control, our own agency, our own signaling. And then we're trying to like mimic something that isn't necessarily going to be ever necessarily natural rather than kind of being encouraged to like seek towards that natural mode and then to just seek out people that resonate with that natural mode of being. And so, you know, as I went through the transition of being a public-facing advocate, I was more afraid of being a public-facing advocate of autism than I was of psychedelics. Like, psychedelics, at least in my little bubble of the internet, like, the stigma's over. People know they're useful. Like, it's not, like, we're just going to keep publishing more and more redundant studies about their different usefulness. We get that. But the autism piece, I think, is just so hard to convey, and it's a, it's a difficult motivation if you aren't really hard pressed to really fully understand it, it's a lot of effort. And I don't blame those that don't understand it. It's hard to find quality information about it. The cultural representations are okay. But as far as dating, your initial question, yeah, like, I mean, I've been in relationships of all sorts. And like, you know, I find like a lot of like similar joys in those same like situations. But since becoming a public advocate, you know, it's a big leap for people that have, you know, that I've engaged with on the other side of that for them to be like, yeah, I accept that is a huge and massive, wonderful thing. Like anyone that goes through a diagnosis, whatever, someone that can still like totally embrace that, accept that, celebrate that, try to understand that, you know, it's no different than any other thing that you'd have to do to really demonstrate like dedication in any sort of relationship. Well, it's almost seems too that there's, we'll get into the psychedelics you know, in the psychedelic process, it is kind of the unmasking of all the layers that we all mask up in this world. Like what is our enculturation? What is society expecting from us, our families? How are we supposed to show up in the world? What is a woman supposed to be like? What is it? You know, all these things. And then you go into a psychedelic and it starts to peel back all that kind of enculturation. And it seems similar in the sense that once you get the diagnosis of autism, you start to realize there's been all these ways that you've masked in a space with people, your families. I know Kayla has felt like that, like, oh, now who am I actually? Can I unmask the ways I've been showing up that actually don't align with my internal compass, with the way my brain works, with the way I want to relate to people? It's interesting how in some ways those two aspects of unmasking mirror each other. Absolutely. And it's amazing how sticky that conditioning can be. Like I'm supposed to be like brave person, stepping out, advocate person. But it took me like years until I could like go into a space and be like, hey, guys, I know it's not that bright in here, but I'm going to wear these sunglasses. And I know you're going to think that's weird, but I don't care because like if I don't, I'm going to be exhausted in like 20 minutes. But like if I think about all the compounded energy wasted trying to endure environments uh, like uh, like, you know, light or sound just to like play it cool at the expense of like all of my physical energy, as opposed to just enduring one moment of embarrassment or shame or whatever it is to be like, hey guys, I have a different neurology and it makes it so that my eyes are sensitive to light. So I'm just gonna wear these sunglasses. Cool. Everyone's like, cool, man. Like, and like delaying that moment for like 20 something years until I like explain that to people. And like, that's very common. And like, and that learned fear and that socialization window when we really absorb, you know, 
it's just, that's why I think a lot of us have a shared narrative. We have a different way of holding our bodies. We have a different intonation. We have really peculiar and very deep interests on certain kinds of topics. All of these things are prone for bullying because it's like a way of keeping like in-group order. And we inherently, a lot of us, become outgrouped. And in that process, there's a lot of healing that has to be done around that. You know, it's it's a, it's a sort of a healing from a sort of demoralization during a period in which a lot of us don't even remember those years of our lives when we're like being called out for some of those things. It's like this like echo of like our childhood that we're just kind of like unknowingly walking through the conditioning map of like on and on. Well, this might be actually a good segment because you're hinting to some of the conditioning that happens. And also when there is that kind of walking through the world and going through it without your own navigation system leading it because you've been taught to kind of ignore it, there comes trauma with that, big T, small T trauma. And then if there is like the teasing because you're not accepted because there's something socially seeming off. Yeah, I mean, on the research side, I could definitely articulate a gajillion reasons why, you know, there was a recent UK study that said close to 40% of autistic people could qualify for PTSD in that study, uh, as opposed to 4% of the general population. And so like, you know, when you're talking like an 8x possibility of PTSD onset, and a lot of those individuals might not even get that diagnosis because the autism diagnosis might be so dominant that it's like, no, you're just autistic. You don't. But like so many of the trait presentations of PTSD are very similar. The origins of those trait presentations might be distinctly autistic or, you know, genetic in nature um, or neurodevelopmental in nature rather than circumstantial. But the nature nurture overlap becomes intertwined. Did you go into psychedelics for an exploratory experience of fun or did you go into psychedelics thinking, whoa, I might have PTSD because being in the world autistic has maybe really affected me? Which way did you come to psychedelics? I mean, I'd like to say it was so elegant as that. Now I'm in, you know, the the mode of helping people to arrive intentionally. I think culturally it's more common that people arrive to psychedelics as a last resort rather than a preventative mode of care. I, I'm here trying to kind of champion the notion that like mindfulness practices or psychedelics could be preventative mental health care approaches so that we don't like get so ingrained in certain kind of conditioning or so that we can more rapidly pivot and evolve our patterns of behavior at any stage of life. Uh, if you take like Goldalin's work about critical periods reopening and like old dogs learning new tricks and things like this, I wish that I had started my journey so intentionally. And part of why I've also done this work is because my journey uh, began really not so intentionally. I was trying to like escape, you know, the sort of hellacious feeling that I had of, that was my whole life at that time. I had no real support going through it. I had a lot of breakthroughs, a lot of like deep connections within myself. I had a, you know, a lot of deep sense of like, for the first time, really having a, a really like firm sense of like how, what my attitudes were towards a given situation, person, circumstance, memory. I was suddenly able to simultaneously process like cognitive information at the same time I was processing somatic information. And I don't know if that is a neurological, like you know, neurodevelopmental thing. I don't know if that's because I was also like a subject of like physical like violence as a child. So maybe I like dissociated uh, in those years. But again, like that's also enmeshed, like my own social clumsiness leads to like blah, blah, blah. 
But when I first started with psychedelics, it was just purely like, I thought it was going to be like having another beer. And then when I tried LSD the first time, I was like, oh my God, I have so much I have to unpack within myself. And there's so much that I can do to connect with other people. And like, life is fine. And like, look at this wonderful thing we're doing and all those other cliches that any person might have. But it was especially rescuing for me because I was just in like devastation thinking and the autistic mind has been shown in some studies to be especially highly ruminative like the the radio of the mind more rarely might quiet in an autistic mind which can play into our you know savantiness at times but it can also play into like you know I remember everything I learned ever but I also remember every traumatic thing that ever happened to me and it's sometimes it's hard to let the water still well enough to be able to kind of like see clearly into the present moment. And so psychedelics were my first teacher of that. Mindfulness practices have kind of taken, you know, a more gentler road since then. But it's a great like introductory course to be like, wow, I can just feel that way. I can like experience life like that instead of whatever that was. Like it's like stepping out of a hurricane for a minute and being like, there's a thing as that's not being in a hurricane. Did you guys know? Holy wow. Like that's how significant it was. And then it gave me motivation to try to live in that like eye of the hurricane more often because all I knew was hurricane up till then. Uh, how dark did it get for you? Oh man. I know. All right. I'm going to cry now. But uh, <laughs> I mean, I was suicidal. That's pretty dark. Uh, you and know, at what it's... age did you first have like a suicidal ideation, would you say? It goes back kind of when I said with the diagnosis stuff, it's like, I was like, wow, look, I know about myself, but I was like, wow, I'm this, this book that they handed me says, I don't know how to make friends. This book that they handed me says that like, I have deficits. This book that they handed me says that I have a disorder. This book that they handed me says that like, and I was just like, I couldn't get past that. No one ever handed me a book that was like, hey, learn your aptitudes. It was all just like, here's what you can't do. And I was like, all right, I can't do that. And then I just gave up on so much. And then how about just... even before that, like before you had the diagnosis, you you kind of hinted at maybe struggling younger with some depression and this idea that, you know, just living in the world as a child, probably with undiagnosed autism and not having an adaptive environment causes PTSD. Did you suffer depression in high school or middle school? Well, so I want to just kind of be careful about like drawing the direct causation of like uh, autism to PTSD. That that other study was like it, it just purely from like the sciencey part of me of just to be like that was correlative in that study and it's worth consideration. But like I think it can trigger people into thinking like not all autistic people have PTSD. They might have a potential like proneness to it. And it might be something that some might have not have considered to be a possibility. I think through the cliche of like, if I didn't go into war, is it possible that I happen to have like a trauma informed behavior pattern? It's still possible, even if I didn't go into a war, that I might have developed like trauma informed like patterns of behavior. Nonetheless, as a kid, being depressed and anxious, I, I have a limited perspective. It was my life, you know, like I just like any human on Earth, I accepted or rejected certain stories. And then I compared my present reality to those certain stories. And then I lived my way mostly that way until psychedelics, when I stopped paying quite so much attention to the stories of others or the stories of myself. And I instead like focused on like breathing, enjoying the sunshine, like listening and existing and like the narrative arc became like background to just the immediacy of the experience. And that's like the liberation period. And like, that's it. <laughs> the end, like there's no more, there's no more to say. <laughs> like, So one thing that you're hinting at is that you were used to living in this storm of self and 
the maybe rumination even created even more of that. And suddenly you take LSD and you have this other experience of feeling like you're in the eye of the storm and there's this calm. What was that like? Do you actually like remember that experience? Yeah, of course. I, like like, like uh, some 60% of uh, study participants is ranked in the one of the top five most experiences. Uh, I would, yeah, I would rank it amongst easily the top, I don't know, one, two or three. I don't want to rank what those ones are, but... Yeah, of course, because from that moment forward, you know, it's the same the first time that I took MDMA. I it was like, it's the first thing I said, like when the MDMA set on was like, I'm pretty sure my whole life has been a panic attack. And I, I, you don't know it until you know how how much those like fear programs are always running and they're efficient. They're good. They kept us safe from like saber tooth tigers eating us and stuff. And, but when there's no saber tooth tigers around and that like vigilance software, it just keeps running. It's just like, uh, it's exhausting. So just touching those points of calm and being like, wow, I could just feel okay. It was simultaneously like beautiful, but then I was a similar kind of grieving of being like, dude, you wasted so much time wondering if lightning was going to strike the next second. Like your whole life, you just wondered and hoped that the lightning wouldn't strike. That was like the posture I held my whole life. I was like, I hope it doesn't. I hope, is it going to strike now? I don't know. And that was the fear of, am I going to mess up? Am I going to make a mistake? Is that person going to hurt me? Is that person going to leave me? Is this going to happen? Is that, it was just all, it's just all hoping against of totally falsified reality that wasn't present. And when that narrative part of the mind could go offline for a second and I could look around and be like, oh, look, there's a tree. Oh, what a nice tree. <laughs> like there's, there was there was no longer this echo of like, ah, uh, like whatever that was. And it's just amazing what like the mind can conjure up, what what scenarios it could anticipate or fear or all these things. And and there's a, a paradox of just like the the way out of like, you know, escaping these rational traps of the mind is like through an irrational sort of just like existing. Like you just breathe, you just you just be in the presence of stuff. And it affords you a, a new capacity to participate in other forms of rational action that are gentle, that are more thoughtful, that are more considered. And so, I mean, yeah, it's impacted my whole life and I, I hear it so consistently in our group. And it's why it's so hard to explain some of these things when people come at it from this perspective of conventional medicine of like, so how does this like cure you or something? I'm like, it's not curing me. It's giving me a different perspective that I can then use as a reference point to like cultivate further. And that's all. Like, what does your vacation cure you of your depression? No, but it might help to give you an opportunity to like feel relief and maybe set a target for, I like how I feel on vacation. I think I'm going to try to bring vacation feeling into my everyday life because I like feeling good. I forgot I could feel good. I sure was depressed where I came from. What was that about? Like, it's just that. <laughs> that's such a beautiful analogy. Yeah. I love that analogy and also that perspective that, you know, we're not taking them to heal something, but in some ways they are because you, there's so many changes that happen within you, even going from hypervigilance to for the first time feeling this sense of calm. And then just with any psychedelic experience, it's trying to then come back and embody that experience in our lives. So what you were just talking about is the ways that psychedelics showed you something that you tried to kind of bring back to your life. What are some of the real key things 
that you experienced in a psychedelic that you now feel like have really radically changed who you are and how you show up in the world? I've tried to just be as gentle as I feel I can be with these medicines. I mean, I've I've taken a lot of LSD doses in my life because I was, for a long period of time, I was taking, you know, a lot of time to kind of figure out like exact dosage. I had like spreadsheets as far as like, you know, I would go up one like microgram of like a, uh, you know, a volumetric dose and like test out if I did that for like 72 washout hours as opposed to like 86 washout hours, what would that mean? And like, there was all these comparisons and the sort of what I would call like supplementation, uh, like using something like LSD as a sort of like serotonergic like supplementation in that mode of operation, that's a little bit less of like the teaching tool that I might associate with higher doses with like LSD or psilocybin or MDMA. Those are sort of like, you know, those are like vacations to, you know, that's your gap year before you go to your job so you can really quickly, rapidly educate yourself on like foreign territory so you can return and have more perspective on like your domestic kind of territories. But these other tools are kind of more like somewhere in between, like hovering above my everyday life, just gently hovering above it to where I can be like, okay, I know I'm caught in this and I know I feel a little stressed, but like, you know, it would help me is not rushing. And so I'm going to not rush. Oh, okay. I'm just going to do this. Okay. And like having that separation layer of being like, we think that the cue when we're stressed is to like lean into being stressed and like be hurried. But like stress is actually like the invitation to be like, maybe you should calm. And like learning that is a really subtle somatic learning. And I was really helped through psychedelics because of just like a certain flexibility. And I think that over time, that flexibility just becomes normal to just be skeptical of what's coming in, all the signals to like to simultaneously trust, but like verify in the same way we do in our external world. I mean, like body says, I'm scared. Am I? Like body says, I'm excited. Should I be like oscillating between like cognitive intelligence and more like kind of uh, like effective, like intuitive, like for lack of a better term, going between like head intelligence and gut intelligence. And there's evidence of some of these things. Some of the fMRI research is showing that autistics might have different like causal versus targeted patterning in some of these very distinct regions that govern whether or not like information flow is moving towards or away from like areas that dictate more somatic information as opposed to more like rational problem solving information. Like there's distinct information flow patterns that are being shown in some of these studies. And something like LSD has also shown to simultaneously increase like the looping between those two regions to kind of give you a bit more of like head, gut, head, gut, head, gut, like per second, like frame rate almost so that you can kind of like emotionally check your rational solution in like a more like successive pattern, like in almost like instantaneously, as opposed to you get like one or two maybe good imaginative guesses before you jump into action. So just having that enhanced intuition, you know, you've been in our class, you've seen like 10,000 different citations of like psilocybin enhances embodiment, enhances like, you know, like emotional intuition, effective empathy, all these different things. Having that enhanced like somatic awareness, in the end, I feel safer more often. Do those Are those choices necessarily better? That's subjective. Does my body feel safer more often? Yes. My body feels safer more often because my body is checking against its own sense of safety in certain circumstances. And that sense of safety has also been enhanced and extended out to more interpersonal safety checks. So I think that like 
at the end of it, we can ascribe all this fancy language, but I think the strongest software that we're running in our bodies is just survive, like be safe. Uh, like it's, you know, we fall in love with somebody because they embody safety. Maybe they have strength that will keep us safe. Maybe they have intelligence that will keep us safe. Maybe they have a nurturing quality that will keep our children safe. Like everything just comes back to like basic survival through my lens. And before I was caught up in that narrative and the narrative that I was following was like other like whatever was asked of me, it wasn't my own personal safety. At times it was, but it was more often being like bullied and being outgrouped so often. My sense of safety was completely backseat to everyone else's comfort and every other thing. And because of that, I was just like perpetually debilitated. So like stepping into that role of prioritizing my own wellness and understanding how that connects back into the wellness of others is also just, I think that's a general growth arc that adults go through regardless of whether they're autistic or not. But I think that the ease of learning those lessons and internalizing them and being taught internally, like just like having myself as a teacher, having my body as a teacher, I think is so much more powerful than having someone outside of me, like that love on the spectrum example. <laughs> it's like that you watch those episodes and the kids are like, I pulled out this chair for this woman and she didn't fall in love with me. Like that is so far removed from what most people care about. If they do, sure, whatever. But there's so much more of a subtle exchange than there is like, I didn't pull out the chair. It's like you get so fixated on like externalized behaviors when there's really like, did you check like the vibrationality of the exchange that was even unfolding? And LSD and psilocybin also attuned me to a vibrational layer of the world that was also, because I was just running the math of the world. I was just like, uh, if I pull out enough chairs, will I find a girlfriend? Like, it's just like, it's like, that's not how that works. <laughs> Next time you go to a restaurant, you're just pulling out chairs. <laughs> hello, hello. Like, it's not... <laughs> But, uh, but do you love me? Do you love me? <laughs> but there's a there's a there's a clumsiness to that. But there's a reality to that too. And so yes. and so. But it's it's a, this. But again, I think that's where the subtlety of what we're talking about in our class and what takes a really lot of education to really get to really understand is that even in the psychedelic space, a lot of this right now is being emphasized around these anchor points of healing. Like you are going to heal your traumatic event. It's going to happen in a session or two, or maybe you'll microdose. That's all cool. That's all fine. That's all well. But these applications that I see within the autistic group are really novel. Like they're really novel in the sense that the, the contact lens analogy is really appropriate. It's like I fall into and out of these, you know, distinctly more kind of like kinesthetic embodied states by virtue of having LSD or psilocybin present in my system. Does that mean that I have some sort of serotonergic something that's off? I don't know. Like, is it receptor binding affinity? Is it like a matter of like transporters? Is it a matter of like, you know, the density of these receptor sites? Do I have some GI issue that's interfering with my serotonin system in my gut? There's a thousand theories, but all like the lived experience of my life is if I take like one fiftieth of a paper tab of LSD, my day is dramatically better. My exchanges are more harmonious. My sense of safety and my ability to have like restful sleep and probably enter more parasympathetic nervous state seems to be enhanced consistently to the point to where it's just like I it's making my life better. And it's making a lot of other people's lives better too. And I'm working on helping the science side kind of articulate it and come to like, what's the mechanistic underpinnings? But I already know. <laughs> like, Yeah, in some ways you've used yourself as an experiment because uh, in your own seeking. And what you're talking about resonates with me as well. This idea that psychedelics for me, I probably, you know, had gone through life pretty disembodied. I had learned how to kind of shut my intuitive nature down. 
And what you're speaking to, whether it's LSD or psilocybin, it does kind of magnify the relationship with self, the relationship with you and your body and then someone else and suddenly feeling the energetics. And what's so interesting is maybe globally, or at least in the Western world, we've been taught in some ways to just shut it down and just follow this path and be like this. And it was so interesting for me, I don't know if you had this experience, but when suddenly my body sensations kind of came back online, at first it was so uncomfortable because it was like, oh, what's this feeling in my gut? <laughs> Why when I'm with this person, do I actually not feel okay? And what you spoke about, about safety is really interesting. I had an episode with a psychologist, Krista Luminere, who's just brilliant. And she's worked with couples and people for so long. And one of the things she said, it's what you just highlighted is in relationship dynamics, whether it's mother, child, you know, partner, it's not really the techniques. Did they communicate like this? Did they pull out the chair? <laughs> Did he take out the trash? It's the safety, that survival mechanism. Does my body calm when I'm with this person? Do I feel safe with you? And actually without the ability to even tap into that, we're in hypervigilance, we're not even aware. So I think that's such an important piece of, it's been in such an important piece of my own human development and noticing like, whoa, this energy in this space does not, does not make me feel comfortable and thriving. And um, that's been a huge piece for me in psychedelic work. So the other thing is that you're also talking about is different medicines and using yourself as an experiment. So, and I don't mean it that way. I don't think you probably set out like, I'm going to use myself as an experiment mm. of someone with <laughs> autism to, I mean, kind of. to tell the science community. <laughs> but you also have that mind. You're saying you made charts. I'm like the complete opposite. It's like, well, how much did you take? Well, I don't really know. You know, it's, you know, so that piece of it has probably been so useful to the community because you're now coming back with at least data of what worked for you. It seems like, and I'm not sure if this is true, it sounds like maybe LSD has been the most helpful psychedelic or earth medicine for you, or is that not the case? I mean, I think I just kind of refer to them as different tools in the toolkit. Let's imagine that the FDA and everyone else is on board with these things being accessible. Every insurance company is like, we agree we should make these as accessible. Let's even pretend, I don't know, maybe it goes to like, uh, this should, could be like Advil. If we get educated enough, people can be entrusted with these tools eventually and whatever it may be. Let's just say that there's access, period. Let's just say you get some exemption to have access and you're like, oh, I'd like to pursue some psychedelic care. I think it's very helpful for people to begin with something like MDMA. It's less common, I think, primarily because of the points of access that are afforded during prohibition. There's a lot more danger to taking a crystallized, synthesized substance than there would be of taking a mushroom that you knew you grew from a spore that you knew grew from a mushroom. That's a lot safer of an exchange of like, risk tolerance. If we got to the point where people are like, oh, great, I'm taking pure MDMA, I had a medical screening, I have no cardiac uh, issues, and I'm not prone to other uh, contraindications, MDMA is an excellent way to have just an internal check-in with the self of being like, hey, when all of my fear software is not running, 
what's my sort of like lucid take on my life? And when I'm in a mode where I can forgive even the most like heinous of things that ever was put against me, what can I do after I empower myself by loving the people that were harmed before they harmed me? Like what's possible then? From there, anything is possible. And it sounds cliche because the people listening to such sentiments who hear that and say that's just some cliche are responding to a sort of distrust that was forged in a sort of absence of these like hyper empathetic states and like deep trusting and deep bonding states. You know, when, when there's that much of a reduction in fear response, when there's that much of a flooding of oxytocin and you're just experiencing pure bonding, pure trust with yourself and others uh, in the right container, you can heal a lot of things really rapidly. And if you take that further into what like Galdalin's work is stating about like ongoing critical period reopening in the weeks following, you can do a lot of sort of software updating uh, with MDMA. And you don't necessarily have to navigate some of the potentially more challenging, you know, psycho, spiritual, so whatever you want to refer to these different other kind of domains of experience. MDMA, even though it's considered a psychedelic under the just sort of the fact that a psychedelic was a term invented by like a writer to begin with, not a, like necessarily a medical doctor. It's just like a category. But like by which I mean, like MDMA has a very different mechanism of action to LSD or psilocybin or DMT, uh, all of which induce a lot more visual, whether you call it a hallucination or maybe you call it a vision or maybe you call it, you know, reality. Like, yeah, maybe you call it like entering another dimensional reality. Maybe, right. I don't know. Like in either case, regardless of like the words ascribed to it, MDMA tends to be more of like the rational material kind of like this is my narrative. This is you. I, you know, you don't, you don't have like an ego dissolution experience. You just have like an ego re-meeting experience uh, with MDMA, which I think is helpful because I sometimes use the metaphor of like, if you do intend to sort of like, you know, depart the sort of layer of like egoic identity, I think it's helpful to kind of like really clear out like your rocket launch pad so that like, if you do go to some other plane of awareness and then you return to selfhood, then you want to return to selfhood and not be like, oh my God, my life is a bunch of garbage. Like, or like it's just like, or everything, like I, I haven't even done the least bit of like cleaning up around here, whatever it might be. It's always an exchange and it can be helpful to take the rocket up to see how much cleaning there is to do and it can vice versa. But I think it's a safer and gentler, easier on-ramp for people, even maybe more so than like certain kinds of like high dose cannabis that some people try to use as a psychedelic. That'll it's just MDMA has a much less likelihood of inducing psychosis or schizophrenia states, all sorts of things. So it just seems gentler. And we know, like, neurotoxicity-wise, it's a fairly safe medicine if dosed properly and if spaced out properly. So I think that that's, if I could, like, have crafted my own kind of approach, that that's where I would have started. Because with any of these medicines, ideally, you start and then you just, then it's then the end. <laughs> like, it's just like, cool, like, I get it. And now I'm going to try to embody what I got. Yeah, I think that I totally agree with you on the MDMA as a good starting point. And I loved that thing that you said about re-meeting self. Is that what you said? It's like you take MDMA and it's it's suddenly you're meeting new aspects of yourself. It's so gentle compared to being, you know, starting out with a medicine like an aboga or even mushrooms suddenly can take you into like the deep, deep, deep shadow that maybe you're not ready for. So the gentleness and the empathy, but that part, the other piece that you're talking about, this um, forgiveness you know, because, you know, we talk about psychedelics, we talk about earth medicines, but really 
it really the whole point of this is the better knowing of self, is the better relating with other, is about gratitude for life, is about being able to forgive and let go of something. And maybe even at first, if it's just for you and your own life being a more fulfilling, joyful life. When you think of the level of forgiveness that you had to go through in your own process, did you feel like that was a big piece? Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. The reason why I went from like suicidal ideation to like, I'll probably go jump off a cliff soon was, it was just like a total breakdown in my life. Like I, I, I was messing up with, you know, my job necessitated that I made more socially intelligent decisions. And so I started to break down versus a previously I had like a productivity based kind of role. Uh, so once I started to kind of flub up social things, then I was like, ugh. And then I couldn't figure out why I'd messed it up. And then I just kind of avoided it. And then I avoided it and avoided it. Eventually, I just like quit the job in a sort of way of trying to reclaim control over my life. And quitting that job, my partner at the time, she was like, no, uh, we split. I fell into like really unhealthy patterns of all sorts. I sold all my stuff. I didn't want to be around anyone. I thought I had failed everybody. And I didn't understand how I had failed them. And so my way of dealing with it was just to avoid it all. And so I ran away. Similarly, the, the sort of like the needle, I don't know, the straw, camel's back, whatever it is, the final kind of tipping point for me when I did finally run away was a few weeks after my friend was killed by like a drunk driver as well. And I just had all of this, like my body was like going through a lot of intense response, but like that dissociation and like shut down, don't process it because that's a dangerous feeling to feel was just like so overriding that it was like having a, like a bee's nest inside my clothes and being like, well, uh, I think I got stung enough to where like, I think I'm numb now. So like, I'm good. Right. <laughs> like, and so taking the psychedelics was like kind of just being like opening up and being like, oh, look at all these bee stings. Oh man, that sucked. Like, and just sitting with it for a long time. And like, I cried for forever, which is also just something that's just like not culturally normative either. Uh, there's not a lot of safe spaces to just go and cry for a while, but it turns out it's like as helpful to cry as it is to like use the bathroom sometimes like you you have to like excrete like these things in order to like process them it's actually beautiful the analogy of like bees in your clothes i can just picture it and then looking at all the stings and the the wounds and then sitting with the emotion which is even the most bravest part because we do avoid those i'm sure there was a lot of grief and processing of all of that yeah i just want to acknowledge that and anytime you want a good cry, give me a call. <laughs> uh, yes, sure. I mean, I don't know if this is permitted on the show, but I, I'm curious as you're this, I do like a thousand of these interviews, oh, okay. but I, so I'm so rarely ever interviewed by someone who's also had like direct experience, like in our spaces, like you've been to like our space before. I'm curious if I could ask you questions about what that experience sure. has been like for you. Bring it like, on. <laughs> just in general, like what has been, I guess, going into it, like firstly, how did you come across this? And then secondly, what expectations did you have that were like met or what like new things came up when you entered into like the support space itself? Like what was your experience with that or like the class too? I'm so curious, like what your feedback is for, for me, for our community in general, whatever it is. All right, folks listening, Aaron has hijacked the interview. He is now asking <laughs> me questions. <laughs> um, first of all, I came across you on Instagram and for whatever reason had an immediate affinity for you and you're just adorable. You know, you have like, whew, you have such a kind way and so coincidental because I came across you and 
just the way you do your content. You know, you're so real, you're so out there and just putting your heart out there all the time. So it was about two weeks that I, before my daughter got diagnosed with autism. So suddenly my daughter had said to me, you know, I might get neurotesting done and, and I supported it wholeheartedly. I'm like, absolutely, Kayla, do whatever you need. And, you know, um, she's such a dear, dear soul to me. And so she did her testing. And the first thing she said, autism was never even something on the radar, which by the way, it should have been because now looking back, it was obvious really. But I think again, one of the other things is that girls get diagnosed differently. It shows up differently in girls. So I, you know, I had, had to go through this, like, I'm so sorry. And she's like, mom, this information wasn't even there. So now my daughter gets diagnosed and I'm like, hit with this mama, like regret of like, ugh, could I have done more? And yet I had really supported Kayla in so many incredibly beautiful ways. Like even the fact of like finding this school that was really this school out in like the woods that treated kids like there were like six kids in the class that held her so beautifully. It was actually when she left there that she really started to struggle. And what I began to learn is that this community doesn't really have a place that really suited her. So then when I reached out to you, you're just so warm, inviting, but beyond all that, your intelligence, it's off scale. <laughs> like you just are so intelligent. And so there's these two magnificent parts of you. That's your heart, your authenticity, and then you're like so brilliant. So those two things like pulled me in and then I really wanted to learn as much as I could for her. And I also wanted to know about your experience because I love story and I love to really get to know somebody. And so I signed up for your course. The first thing I did is I can't, you invited me to come to a Sunday meetup that you run. So as the psychedelic mom, I am looking at that word psychedelic as what reveals truth. Psychedelic means soul revealing. And what aspects of ourselves are we actually speaking what's true. And so I show up to your uh, Sunday meetup and I am blown away. Aaron, I'm not kidding. Like I got off the phone and I thought, I'm not sure if I've ever experienced a circle that was so authentic where everybody was speaking such deep, vulnerable truths about their lives, about their relationships. You obviously held that container so well that people felt so comfortable speaking the real difficulties of every aspect of their life. I invited my daughter to come to that meeting. So suddenly it was like, I saw Kayla's face and I'm like, oh, Kayla's here. And so that was exciting too, to be there as a mom and have my daughter there. And even though I didn't know you, I just felt this deep connection with you. And I found myself so many times in that group being so grateful for the information that was there. And you know, Kayla's not into psychedelics. So I invited her anyway and I said, just come. I bet you it's not really gonna be about psychedelics. <laughs> so the topic was intimacy, actually. And so it was so refreshing to be in space where people could actually talk about what was really going on in their lives. And then I just signed up for your, what do you call this program that I'm in now? It's just the introduction to psychedelic autism course. Yeah. You run it so beautifully. 
and this is not like, you know, I'm not pumping your tires. I'm being truthful. I think the fact that you've made this space, the information that you give in regards to psychedelics and autism and the the way in which you look at the topics in a fluid way, you're not, it's, I know that sometimes autistic minds can be very rigid and I've noticed and maybe you are at times too, I am at times, but you really flow with the information. And whenever anybody has feedback, you're so open about it. The other thing that's really interesting is you put up last week the article that Dr. Rosalind Watts wrote about her TED Talk conversation that she gave being this evangelical, you know, scientist doctor saying like, look at the data on this. And then this article is about five years later, how in some ways she wants to not necessarily retract, but give a fuller picture of what's real about healing depression with psychedelics. And so you put that out to read, which I then sent to about 10 people and different groups that I'm in because it mirrored my own experience with psychedelics as a psychedelic integration person, as someone who facilitates psychedelic journeys in legal places, I have also felt that my own exuberance, at times I'm like, it's a red pill. It's not a red pill. And it's kind of a red pill. But like, so the dialogue that you're bringing up in these, in your program is not just about autism. It's so informative. It's been an easy group to jump into as someone who's probably neurodivergent. And so, you know, I see aspects of Kayla in it. I'm learning how to even listen more to what her needs are by listening to the needs of the group. Yeah. I I couldn't say enough about how you hold space, the heart in which you come with, and then the information that you're providing. You're, you're doing a really incredible job. I mean, I thank you. I mean, it, it means a lot to to hear that. I didn't know some of those aspects of like the backstory either. And yeah, it was special to have you there too. You know, my parents have attended some of the meetings just kind of like, you know, to kind of be like, what is this? I've, I've invited them in and their participation in my ongoing education about this has, you know, it's meant a lot to me too. And I'm sure it means a lot to your daughter as well that you've taken this interest. Even within our group space, we were like, hooray, psychedelic mom is here. Like, it was like there, because for us, it's a, it's a relieving of a sort of assumption that there is, uh, you know, that that it's always uh, that all parents everywhere are counter to psychedelics just because parents are counter. Like that narrative is fastly changing quickly. There was a survey the other day that said there was like 65 plus was like, I think it was like one in four people, 65 plus were open to microdosing versus like under was like a less ratio out of 10. But I think that, that there's other confounding factors, but like, I think we have these narratives and as we're just, you know, the, the boomers are aging or like the people that were going through the era of like the sort of psychedelic, like initial phase of like pre-prohibition era those people have been influencing the world in so many ways, maybe not so publicly as they are now, but psychedelics have been shaping the culture for so long. Uh, it's just now that I was like, I published my book on right before there was even a single like medical declared company that was going to look at this like sincerely as a medicine. There was early trials. There was like kind of understandings, but there was no intent to like make this a medicine. And there was no, not a whisper of anything like Oregon or Colorado ever happening anytime soon then. And really quickly, it's only been, uh, you know, three and a half years since then, like four years-ish. And in that time, like the number of companies, the number of studies, the number of 
news stories, whatever. Like at that time, I I didn't see reflections of my story anywhere. And so that was an impetus for starting it. But so much has changed that I, I echo that part of with Dr. Watts of like, I play the role of like slowing people down more often now. Me too. And what you just said too, like at that time, you didn't see a reflection of yourself in that that space. I didn't either. Like I didn't know any mothers that were out there saying like, oh, hey, I did this thing and I think it could actually help me be a better mother. I actually think I'm learning stuff about my enculturation and peeling back layers of myself that I think will really help me as a human being in every relationship that I'm in. Nobody was talking about that. I'm curious because I have some really mixed feelings about the way the psychedelic renaissance resurgence is going. And I think like, Sometimes I think, oh, am I just in an altered reality where I'm in this reality that everybody's all they're ever talking about is psychedelics? I don't know. But I feel like the conversation has become so everywhere. And what you just talked about, all the pharmaceuticals companies jumping in, and people can have different points of view, whether these medicines have a sacredness to them, whether there should be a container held around these spaces that you know, mix the indigenous cultures. When I look into the field now compared to three years ago, there is, and I, you know, it doesn't make me right in this thinking, but I'm like, wow, is the pharmaceutical Western model superposing themselves on this industry in a way that will not actually be a good thing? I mean, there's certainly a lot of grounds for looking at it through that lens. Um, you know, I'm in an, an interesting position. I interface with uh, academic institutions. I learn a great deal from research that comes and emerges from pharmaceutical companies who can afford to do really expensive neuroimaging studies that couldn't otherwise be covered. I also actively serve as an educator for Alma Institute in Oregon, which focuses specifically on providing marginalized access and keep continuing lineage traditions and elevating them uh, to the like the first class of providers of psilocybin in Oregon. Like not to make that just like a tack on, but to make that a primary initiative. Could um, you say that name again? What that is? That's Alma A L M A Alma Institute. They're, they just train uh, individuals in Oregon, but they specifically focus on marginalized communities, whether that's race, uh, gender identity, um, and, and again, with an emphasis of, of carrying forward wisdom-based traditions with the knowledge that a lot of those wisdom-based traditions, you know, regardless of the inability for us to hold up certain kinds of measuring sticks quite so elegantly just yet to them, are the reason why a lot of those traditions have persisted is because those people have persisted in ways of life that were sustainable and living in harmony with medicine practices. And again, it, I don't think it's talked about enough, the notion of using these medicines preventatively or routinely as we might with fluoride in order to be like, oh, another 10 years went by. My brain probably got sticky with some patterns. Let's like decalcify my brain grooves. Okay, cool. Like now I got like squeaky clean brain grooves. Now I'm going to like become this next phase of my life without holding on to the one that's been dead in my head for 10 years. Like there's this way that we can kind of more rapidly evolve through the agency that psychedelics afford us. But to answer your point about like the complexity of like the socio-political sphere, I mean, man, I just focus on education as best I can. 
with the knowledge that people are taking their friends to the park on the weekend and getting great benefits and the knowledge that a lot of people out there might prefer to go to a doctor and get benefits there, the knowledge that great harms can come from going to the park or going to the doctor, any like there's adverse events in any scenario, we can mitigate risk. My primary initiative is just to provide quality education to people so that no matter the domain that they're entering into the scenario, that they're able to equip themselves with as much of an informed uh, concept of like what they're really engaging with, what the risk is, and what sorts of questions they ought to be asking their providers, what sorts of you know checks should they be making with themselves before, during, and after any engagement with any of these tools. Because it's just a matter of education, you know, like I have a thousand different dangerous things under my sink and I could start a fire in two seconds from now, but I don't because our culture has really educated us well on not drinking the things under my sink and not like starting fires at certain kinds of contexts. But I'm glad I know how to make fire and I'm glad I know how to clean things that are inside my sink because I learned how to use the things under the sink. Like there like there there's a utility and which like I, I'm I'm very fortunate to be involved in the ADAPT training development now. And ADAPT is adult drug abuse prevention training, which is antithetical to DARE, which is predicated on resisting drugs, period. Like don't do drugs. But like we all do drugs. I like we all do sugar. We all do caffeine sometimes. We all do something. Like we all do neurotransmitters. We all do all these things. And like the ignorance towards neurochemistry is just people are just falling into like un unchecked patterns. And so the whole idea of the adapt training is to provide them with quality information, not just say like don't do this. Be like, you might do this. If so, here's how to not die. Here's how to also receive enhancement if you're engaging in this. If you're taking a psychiatric medicine from a provider, here's how to also like ask the right questions. Here's how to not fall into opiate addictions from your medical provider. Here's how to notice the signs and early symptoms of these sorts of patterns. And here's the line where abuse forms. And here's this, the escalation of what you should do if you feel you're in an abuse cycle or if you know somebody. Because just telling people don't do that is why we have so many people in those cycles and why they can't talk about it with people because of the shame, because of the stigma. So, like, that's as much the effort. There's certainly a lot to be said on the socio, political, economic fronts of all of this. I just, I try to keep myself centered on just the education piece, knowing that no matter how that fight continues to shake out, people are going to keep using substances in a lot of contexts, and they're going to need good information. And I'm just, that's my main mission. And, and I don't want to be, like, thrown under by taking very many sides and much else other than people's personal wellness. That's really helpful, actually, the way you said that, because I actually resonate with all of what you said, too. So it's a really good perspective to keep in mind. And just the the fact that you're working with researchers, and like you said, they have the money to put into the research. And that is a way that someone else is going to go. And as a matter of fact, it may be in a more affordable way. Yeah. Because maybe insurance will cover it. Yeah. I don't know yet. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know I know. yet. I mean, I think for for my own posterity, for my own ability to like go to sleep at night, like I think it's worth calling out my own particular like level of like privilege and access. Like I'm a white male. I live in America. I can speak publicly about drug usage. That's not everyone's deck of cards. Many people would be like, I could take the risk of like, maybe I would never get hired in a majority of jobs if they Googled me now. Like, I can take on a lot of different risks that it would be like unheard of for a lot of people. And I think that there is a, 
a, a very understandable tension point between those that believe that uh, medicine covered by insurance is equivocal to access versus those that believe that the ability to cultivate mushrooms in one's backyard is equivocal to access. Because for, you know, a couple hundred dollars, you could have a lifetime supply of psilocybin if you wanted to, as long as someone doesn't say, hey, if you do that, you go to jail, though. And then on the flip, like, and yes, those people are taking risks and bearing those risks. But so also is the person going to the clinic. These clinics are going to have adverse events as well. There's going to just be adverse. There has been adverse events. We hear about them in our group all the time. It's not like always a perfect outcome. There's adverse events when people to get like a flu shot. There's like everything. But I just I, I would be beholden to not kind of acknowledge the fact that there is a layer of privilege that assumes that like purely that. I love everything that comes with safety, that comes from purity of substance, that comes from accessibility of insurers covering these very helpful tools. I also sympathize and want to also give like a shout and a support to those that believe that just cultivating like natural medicines ought to be permissible and not seen as like a competition of market share upon anything else. Like it's just people taking care of themselves. Like, can we leave the people alone that are trying to take care of themselves and each other? They're just trying to do that. <laughs> like, yeah. Right. In some ways, I mean, you know, I believe it's everybody's sovereign right to do so. And, you know, at some point maybe we'll get there and thank you for pointing out as well, the fact that we do have privilege and we're, I'm not living in an over-policed, you know, neighborhood. So the idea that I can even have these conversations in and of itself as a privilege. So what is coming up for you or anything else that you feel like that you want to share with anybody listening today? Yeah, sure. You know, firstly, I, I just want to thank you for holding this space, for having this conversation, for providing feedback about our group. Like I said, I do like 10,000 of these things. This one means a lot to me and, and, and I intend to really like share it broadly for that reason. Just, I don't know. I don't know if you've become like a proxy to my own parents in this conversation or something, but it's it's been really helpful to hear your perspective too. Because these are things I legitimately wonder about. Like I hear from parents all the time, but I, I so rarely get to, they're so often fixated on, you know, the wellness of their children for obvious reason. But I think we sometimes overlook like the impact that the parents are going through in these scenarios too. Um, and it's interesting to hear your perspective from that. Well, you know, just on this parenting piece a little bit, what was your experience with your parents when it came to you starting on the psychedelic path? And would you have any advice for a parent whose child is autistic or is newly getting a diagnosis of autism on ways to support them? Yeah, I think a couple of things. Just to kind of ask them, I think parents commonly do this, but I think that a parent-child dynamic can be, depending on the stage of life, Things that can be caretaking gestures might be, you know, might become rejected over time, perhaps. And this happened to me. It still happens to me at times. It's like I am simultaneously sometimes I'm like, hey, guys, I have an accommodation request. And then there's this other part of me that's like, but I'm an adult. I don't need anyone to do that. Like there's that tension point that's constant. And so I think there's a, a patience and a gentling towards those like inner conflicts for parents and children both. There's this sort of like, uh, should I help them or should I allow them to strengthen? What should I? Uh, there's like so much in between kind of space. 
if there's people that are like listening to this thing now and they want to like continue this kind of conversation, there's a bunch of avenues where it can take place. Uh, we we have that open meeting every Sunday. I host that. Sometimes others also assist me with that. That's every Sunday, 11 o'clock Pacific time. You can go to autisticpsychedelic.com slash meet, M-E-E-T, and then you can join. It's a free Zoom meeting. goes from like an hour to, I don't know, sometimes like five hours sometimes, but it's every Sunday. It's free. And then if you want to just like learn in general, the autisticpsychedelic.com site has a gajillion resources. If you want to go even further than that, you can take our class through the same site. It's like the top of the site, the like learn link is there. It's like an eight hour class, a lot of information, more science, less like kind of philosophy, more like evidence-based stuff. And then the last thing is I recently just kind of started offering up my time. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a therapist. But I'm like a, a sort of like a, I'm a concierge or something of like information about this stuff. If you want to talk to me for like an hour or some time, I can probably give you like 150 links that will probably give you enough to chew on for a long time and kind of develop your own understandings. You know, I'm not a healer person. I'm not a coach. I, I just know a lot of stuff and I can dispense information really rapidly. And that's just an awareness of a gift. I, I offer it to people if they would like it. And that's pretty much it. Otherwise... Yeah, just thanks for holding this space. Thanks for doing stuff. Thanks for being a parent and talking about psychedelics. It means a lot to me. And I'm sure I'll pass this off to my parents to listen to. And I'm sure they probably heard most of these things before, but I'm sure they also appreciate you taking the time to do this too. It's It means a lot. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for doing all that you're doing. You're giving so much of your time and energy to this work and supporting people who are autistic. And with that knowledge that you do carry, it makes it so helpful to so many people. I really appreciate all that you're doing in your community, in creating these courses, writing these books. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm just trying to help the people help the people. If you enjoyed today's show and want to help build a more beautiful, conscious, and loving world, please share this content with friends, family, and colleagues. You can follow this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. And I'd really appreciate you taking the time to write a review so that others can find these amazing conversations. And if you'd like to see a video version of the show, you can find me on YouTube. Feel free to reach out and connect with me at thepsychedelicmom.com or message me on Instagram at thepsychedelicmom. And remember, you are the medicine. <laughs>